we look towards uh, Exodus chapter 3, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, the burning bush. Starting in verse 1, here we go. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to their far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb is just another name for Mount Sinai. And some cool stuff's going to happen a few chapters down the road here at Mount Sinai. That's where the giving of the Ten Commandments is going to go down. Uh, There, the angel of the Lord appeared. By the way, whenever we see the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we'll see it throughout Exodus a few different times, the angel of the Lord is not just an angel, but the angel as the very representative, the, the very envoy of speaking the very words of God. Uh, some have even maybe wondered, could it even be a kind of a, a, a Christ-like called a theophany? That is an appearance of God in such a way that man can view him without being destroyed by his glory. And, and again, the angel of the Lord, who is again the very representation of the Lord, appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so here's this great contradiction that is the nature of God that we're going to study out today. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. And let me uh, begin with one point here as we make our way through the text. And I'll take a pause. And my my first point that I want to really make sure that we understand from this text is this idea of being disrupted by a contradiction. And it's very important that we are disrupted by a contradiction because God is counterintuitive to us. God is a contradiction in more ways than we can begin to list out. But he actively disrupts us even while we are lost in a flow of inertia of every day, keep on keeping on. And that is exactly what was going on in Moses' life. He was tending to the flocks. He was trying to figure out, should I go over here? Should I go over there? But he's so immersed in what it is that he's doing that he wasn't in a position to take time, stop, hit the pause button, step back, and say to himself, what's it really all about? What is the real meaning of life? He is not contemplating those questions. Why? Because he's just putting his head down and he's trying to be an effective herder of this, of this flock right now. And, and guess what? So we all are. And my goodness, Moses was doing that and all he had was a staff and a flock. And a rather barren landscape, if this is near Mount Sinai. And that's all he had. Now, how much harder would it be for any of us to stop and take a ruthless inventory of our lives and our consideration of greater purposes when you've got this and this and so many other things that are wonderfully, sadly designed to amuse you. Now the the word amuse is an interesting word because it it literally means 
to keep you mindlessly distracted, to give you an escape of serious shallowness. I guess that's a uh, bit of a um, paradox there. But, but for you to just kind of shift your mind into neutral and just enjoy idling for a while rather than shifting into gear and considering what is the great purpose that gives meaning to my life, to my work, to my family. But if Satan is able to keep you wonderfully, mindlessly, thoughtlessly distracted, he's happy to do so. But no matter how much he tries, there will be distractions or there will be disruptions to your distraction because there are great truths that we cannot deny and God will send disruptions into your life. And he may have to turn up the heat with those disruptions at times, uh, depending upon how really ingrained the inertia of thoughtlessness really is. But I, I know for me, I didn't wake up one morning at the age of 29 and said, today's the day. Enough of this small thinking. Enough of this mundane, profane living. Today, I'm getting metaphysical. And I am going to have a transcendent view of all things, contemplate the great mysteries of the cosmos, and maybe even see if there is some sort of a transcendent reality with a creator behind all of this creation. If I ever had that thought, it was only because I wanted to seem deep and I might have been actually in a coffee bar with, with other people trying to seem deep at the moment. But I was only doing it because it would kind of make me seem a certain way. But there was nothing in that that I was genuinely, sincerely ready to run after. And, and, and if I ever did, I quickly dismissed it. Why? Because I was a slave to sin. And if I ever allowed myself to consider things like purposefulness and creator and transcendent reality of one who is actually in a position of dominion as God is over all of us, I quickly put it aside and thought about the Yankees. It's not a good thing right now. And, and why? Because that amused me. And it also allowed me to keep on keeping on because I was a slave to sin. And God is intervening in his people through this event right now because at this very moment, they are slaves to sin. And of course, it, the, the, the metaphor is that they are slaves to the Egyptians. They are slaves to the world. They are enslaved by slave drivers that have complete sovereignty over them. But for all of us too, we don't want to be disrupted by greatness, by purpose, if we are engaged in sinful behavior. And, and sinful behavior is very difficult because it is by nature a slavery. The, the Bible, Bible calls it such repeatedly. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves up to someone as obedient slaves, you're a slave to the one you obey, whether you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Paul writes that in Romans 6, 16. 
he, he, goes, he goes on to say in, in chapter 7 of the frustration of wanting to do right but a slave to sin. Wanting to do the good that he ought to do but does not do it. Ah, what hope is there for me? And ultimately there will be at the end of Romans 7 as he then realizes, ah, in Jesus there will be. But think about this. Whenever we sin, we are enslaving not just our, our will, but all of our faculties. When you, out of your will, make a decision to sin, you are using your will to go in a path contrary to the very will of God, to the very purposefulness that God had for your life, for the wonder, for the purity that, that was always yours, for the for the greatest aspirations that your parent had for you as you were a swaddling baby, thinking of the wonders and the righteousness and the greatness that would be your life. But when we sin, we go against that very path. And when we do, we diminish our will. Every time we sin, we are doing something to our will. Although we're made in the image of God initially, that we are defacing and undermining the very strength of our will that could have been exercised for righteousness instead is now opening the door for nothing but a frustrating cycle of making decisions with greater futility, even making half-hearted decisions. I think I'm going to do right now only to go back to that boyfriend, yeah. only to go back to that substance only to go back to that lie, only to engage in that gossip to make you feel a tiny bit better because it seems to put someone else in a slightly uglier light than you view yourself. But it doesn't just diminish the will, but other faculties as well. It diminishes our emotions. Because when we sin with our emotions, our emotions become twisted and tortured by, by that very sin. That it does end up being engaged to a slave driver. Instead of our emotions serving us, then we begin to serve our emotions as our emotions serve sin. And a slavery to sin. We, enslaved to our emotions, make quick decisions of saying, Oh, but, but I need this. And, and so I am going to engage in this pornographic indulgence. But I need this. So I, I do need to have myself affirmed by this flirtation in the, in the office place. And again, with every new episode of, of sin, we also have diminishing returns in terms of the boost that we're looking for ourselves. And so that initial flirtation well, might have really kind of engaged your emotions and, and sparked some sort of excitement within you. But the third or fourth time that the flirtation comes your way, it's not quite as big of a jump. And again, you have a diminished emotional capacity that is no longer aligned with holiness or righteousness. You no longer have a will that's aligned with it. And, and now your emotions are seeking that little norepinephrine bump that you had gotten from that smile and that giggle from the girl in your office who thinks you're so funny. And now you have to take it higher. 
to get that feeling again. And then higher after that. And then the craziness of the risk-taking behavior that would take even beyond that. A slave. A slave to sin. And when we sin with our intellect, when we are intellectually dishonest, when we justify with clarity of thought why it is that I need the bourbon, why it is that I need the pornography, why it is that I need the indulgence of, of masturbation, or why it is that I need the, the jolt of, of flirtation, or, or why it is that I need the greed in my life, or the ambition and the affirmation of making my career more important than any other thing. That when we do that with clarity of thought, we also then distort and torture. The word torture means to twist in a terrible way under bondage. We, we, we torture our intellect as well until its capacity likewise has been compromised irreparably as has our will and our emotions. And it's a, a horrible dance as you head deeper and deeper, one in which the way out is far from your ability to achieve. And thus nobody ever wakes up saying, today's the day that I become transcendent. Right. Today's the day that I set my, thing, my thoughts and heart on things above rather than on things below. Why? We're happy to be amused. We're happy to go with the current of thoughtlessness and go down that lazy river as long as we can take the ride because to get off means to be confronted with a painful disruption in our lives. And this burning bush here is that disruption of slavery for all of God's people. This, this burning bush is a contradiction to the let's just let it ride, let's just cruise control this, this life on down. It is a disruption to that because there's a contradiction that suddenly messes up my thoughtlessness. And I actually have to consider it. And it might be a contradiction in a person that God puts in your path. The burning bush is a contradiction. It's a bush that burns, but yet it's not consumed. It is a, a really radical contradiction. But it's not just a, a contradiction in, in, the, um, in, in the idea of just unexplainable. There are two things that are going on, that are really going on, that actually cause Moses, in this case, to say, if this is the case, if there is a bush that burns and is not consumed, and there's an angel in that bush, well, then there must be more to life than just the physical. And I now have to deal with that rather than keep my agenda going that does not consider the higher purposes for your life. And perhaps God has done that to bring you here today. Perhaps God did that in some way or another to bring you here years ago. But either way, be astounded that you have a God that loves you so dearly that he wants to put that contradiction in your path to stop you in your very path so that you don't just keep mindlessly walking down the primrose path, but to, to really be disrupted by the grand contradiction that he is. 
Because he's, he's both a happy little bush and a furious fire. Right. How can both of those things coexist at the same time? How can you be both a happy little bush <laughs> and a furious fire? By the way, I came across this in case any of you are thinking of uh, Halloween costumes of Bob Ross and his happy little bush. That's there. Um, but to be disrupted by this contradiction is, is also shown right here. Look at, look at how this contradiction continues in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him, from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer. That's a contradiction. Because whenever something is a couplet like this in, in Hebrew or e even in Aramaic, when, when Jesus is speaking or, or, or throughout the Bible when God is speaking, think of the times where we have these couplets of someone's name. When David mourns the death of his son Absalom, he doesn't say, oh, Absalom, my son. No, the plaintive cry that wells up from the depth of his soul is Absalom, Absalom, my son. When Jesus likewise laments Jerusalem, whom he loves so dearly and wants to gather under his wings as a, as a, as a chick gathers, it's, it, as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings. When Jesus looks right into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives with desire in his heart and he cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I desire to gather you as a hen gathers a chick under its wings. Or even as Jesus is dying for us on the cross, maybe the most famous of all. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we hear this coupling of a name, even when Jesus confronts Martha, it's not out of annoyance. Martha, Martha, you are distracted by many things, but one thing is needed. It is a compassionate Overflow of concern and love, a passionate love, a fiery love that is being communicated whenever that, that coupling occurs. But to have Moses, Moses, and for Moses to hear the compassion of the Lord himself speaking through the angel to come and approach the Lord, having heard the compassion of his voice, and then to hear right afterwards, don't come any closer. The contradiction now is only deepened as he begins to seek. And my second point is, we are drawn by a contradiction. Drawn knowing that there is something more. Moses is drawn to this bush by a contradiction. The compassionate cry of a creator, sovereign over all things, to actually consider him, him of all people. And to cry out, Moses, my Moses, my Moses. But then don't come any closer. 
Why? Because as we are kind of disrupted from the keep on keeping on, we now have to consider God. And we have Moses here considering God. And when you begin to consider God, he is not some sort of a 2D flat idea, but one of remarkable depth and dimension. Because God is not some sort of a, a cartoon caricature. God has depth more than we can begin to imagine. God has compassion, but that compassion is also connected to holiness. Amen. And so while he can reach out to you, he's like, you know, Ryan, Ryan, good to have you back. Ryan, Ryan. He, he also then would say, don't come any closer. Why? I love you, but I am holy. I embrace you, but this is a dangerous thing that you're considering. Fire is beautiful. Fire is powerful. Fire is also a metaphor of judgment. And so we have a God who reaches out in compassionate love, but also says, watch out. I am holy. The ground you're standing on is holy ground. Do not trifle with what is about to go down here. And isn't that the God that we should want? Would we just want a God who's like really loving but only a little bit holy? What difference would that make in transforming any of our lives? Or would we want a God who's really holy but only a little bit loving? So that we're kind of walking on eggshells all the time, wondering, is that the lightning bolt that's coming my way? But here is the beauty of this fire and this bush, is that we have a God who is both loving with passion for you, but also holy in his plans and expectations for you and for his people. And for Moses, right here. Let's read on. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, out of slavery. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You will worship God on this mountain. 
Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, Yahweh, I am. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt and into the land. The land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey. Here we get a, a more full picture of God. And we begin to see how this contradiction is such a draw for us. A God who would love with limitless passion. And yet a God who is a consuming fire of holiness. Right. And as we come to this God, it leaves us with a, another contradiction, another conundrum. How am I ever, ever going to be able to approach this God? This God, though, that has come down. This God in holiness, who has tenderly given me the promises of escape from the bondage that has so debilitated my heart, my mind, my strength, my soul. That is so debilitated my emotions, my intellect, my will. I've got nothing and yet this God comes to me. Comes to me not at this moment. Comes to me at my worst moment. This God who comes down. And I encourage you. If you have not been drawn by the beautiful contradiction of our God. Let this be a time where you're in Bible study with one another, where you begin to appreciate all the beautiful aspects of the God who rescues you, Amen. of the God who sanctifies you so that you can be holy, so that you can walk in his very paths, not some compromised path of a God only of compassion, but a transcendent path, a path of greatness that would mark your life of a God of both compassion and holiness. But how can this happen? How can compromised you and me, slaves to sin, with only a continual desire to kind of get it going again, how can you and I ever be delivered into that sort of freedom, liberation. My last point is, we're delivered by a contradiction. It is a beautiful scene here that God intervenes on, on, on his people 
at a terrible moment. Bricks without straw, slave drivers, complete oppression, absolute bankruptcy of hope for, for all of his people. I don't know where you're at today, but maybe that phrase, a bankruptcy of hope, might actually resonate a little bit with you. Maybe you know the frustration of the slave driving dominance of sin. Maybe you know the, ah, the just radical helplessness of, of wanting to try to do something better with, with, with the life that God has given you, only to be steeped again in darkness and futility, self-indulgence in a, in a way that only twists and tortures not just your heart and your mind, but your very soul as well. And yet, it's in this very, very moment that he comes to the Israelites, and in this very moment that he comes to you. Why all of this? Because he wants to deliver. That's what God wants. Why invoke the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob again and again? Why? Because God has always had a plan for his people, and he's always had a plan for you. He's always had, as he considers you, with more thoughts than the grains of sand of the seashore. Psalm 139 says that about you. That as he considers you and as he considers Israel, he has always had a plan that through Abraham, he would make him into a blessing. He would be blessed and he would be a blessing. This precious cargo that Abraham carried with him was then a blessing that extended on, after a long time, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. And when it looked like that blessing was under assault from the corrupting influences of the community around them, God then, to protect this blessing, because one day this blessing needed to get to you, to protect this blessing, brought Jacob, his sons, and the blessing into Israel. To sequester it. To keep it from the, the corrupting influences that would undermine it. And to allow it to continue to, to be vibrant so that one day it would come to you. All, of that, all that is going on here is so that there would not be a disruption in something much more important. The blessing getting to you. And God comes here to say, you know what? That plan that I had from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... And even now with you, and even though I told you, and I told Abraham, 500 years from now, my people will come out. My people will come out and expand and see the blessing flow even greater. From them will come an even greater blessing to all nations. From them will come my son, is the ultimate beauty of this. And the nature of God does not change. Because it says here, God heard the cry. God saw the misery. It had reached his very ears. And now what is he going to do? He's going to come down. Amen. He's not going to sit on high and just send a decree. He's going to come down and get his hands dirty so that they could know what it is to really be delivered. Right. But it's not just delivered. There's something even beyond that. God wants you to be a burning bush. He wants you to be set ablaze Amen. by him. Fragile bush though you are, nonetheless, a recipient, a recipient, a carrier of the very fire, the spirit of God, 
that could reside within you permanently in a way that does not consume you, but instead sets you ablaze so that you can be a disruption to other people, so that people can marvel at you, so that you are that conundrum of, wow, how is it that Erica can be so holy, so righteous, so utterly consecrated different from everybody else at our workplace, and yet so friendly, so accessible, so embracing. You are meant to be a contradiction as well. You are meant to carry in your mortal bodies the very fire of God yourself. And how is that going to happen? Only because God comes down. God comes down in His Son. God comes down in Jesus. And as He comes down, He bears the real flame of power, of justice. He endures the flame of judgment. And in the end, as he empties himself to come to help us know God, he is consumed by that flame. Why? So that you will not be consumed by that flame. So that you can rise up. You can be reborn. You can have deliverance. Deliverance from the frustration of the sin and the slave driving of sin that has turned your life into a wicked distortion of what it was always meant to be. So that you can be disrupted, have clarity of thought, and to really step back and realize there is a bigger purpose. If there are burning bushes, then there is something bigger going on. And if there are burning bushes that God has put in my life to make me stop and take notice of the contradictions, even in, in people that he has put in my life, to know that that is for a purpose, so that the blessing would be carried unto you. The blessing of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The blessing carried through all of Israel. The blessing embodied in Jesus the blessing that was given to you through His complete sacrifice. Amen. He endured the flames. And now, you are fireproof. You walk this earth, if you have been reborn of that spirit, of that flame, you walk this earth with that flame. You walk this earth with that blessing. You walk this earth to disrupt others who are also have been in bondage to sin. You have a new holy contradiction that marks your very life. Are we still mortal? Or are we still subject to, to all of the vagaries and pressures of this world and the temptations? Yes, we are. But we also know that what we have been given is not based on our mortal efforts. What we have been given is based 
on His divine intercession for us. We've been given the very Spirit of God, the very flame that can reside within us, not because of our track record, but because of His. And though our missteps and our stumbles and our profane, mundane attempts at, at living it out may falter again and again, remember that it does not extinguish that flame. Fan that flame into fire, as Paul tells Timothy. Fan it into fire. What you have is the very plan of God from Abraham to you. That the blessing now has been activated through Jesus to you, to all. Let's not hide that under a bushel basket. Let's not in any way pull back from that. This month, as we consider the liberation that we study, the God who desires liberation, the God who so delights in allowing you to be part of his liberation plan. Brothers and sisters, this week, this month, this every day, let's remember the God who came down, the God consumed by fire, the God who hears, the God who loves, the God who has made you holy, the God who has consecrated you, the God that has given you the blessing, the God that has set you aflame. And let's go out and liberate all who need to hear what God has done to you so that they will know the deliverance that was always meant for them as well. Amen.